0: Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad you made it in this morning. I don't know how it is out there traveling in, but uh, you made it. You're here. And uh, I think you're here for a reason, right? That's what I always say. I'm here for a reason. We all are. There were uh, two men who were seated next to each other on a flight from L.A. to New York. And one man asks the other if he'd like to play a fun game. The second guy, he's kinda tired, he just wants to take a nap, politely declines and rolls toward the window to catch a few winks. The First guy persists, no, no, this is really a fun game. I ask you a question, and if you don't know the answer, you pay me five dollars. And then you'll ask me a question, if I don't know the answer, I'll pay you five dollars. Again, he declines and tries to get some sleep the first guy doesn't give up. He says, okay, if you don't know the answer, you pay me $5. And if I don't know the answer to your question, I'll pay you $500. $500. Well, this catches the man's attention and figuring there would be no end to his torment unless he plays, agrees to the game. So the first guy asks the first question. He asks him, what's the distance from the earth to the moon? The guy doesn't even think about it, doesn't say a word, reaches in his pocket, pulls out $5 and hands it to the other guy. Okay, the first guy says, your turn. He asks, well, what goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four legs? Guy's puzzled, he goes, I have no idea. So he, he takes out his laptop, he searches all his references, no answer. He taps into his earphone with his modem and searches the net in the Library of Congress, no answer. Frustrated, he then sends emails to all his friends and co-workers to no avail. Well, after an hour of this research, he, he wakes the guy up and he says, I don't know the answer. And he gives him $500 in cash. The man says, thank you, and he turns back to get some sleep. First guy who's more than a little miffed wakes up the guy and he says, well, what's the answer? Without a word, the man reaches into his pocket, hands the man $5 and goes back to sleep. I think he got the best of them. The void between questions and answers remains, creating an opportunity. Our brains can ask a lot of sophisticated questions, yet not have the answers to them. But fortunately, there's Google. Instead of lifting your eyes and looking to the heavens, we say, hey Google. Well, is Google a modern day high tech God? Well, Scott Galloway's book, The Four, referring to the dominance and influence of Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple, has this to say about Google. Galloway writes, As more and more people become alienated from traditional religion, we look to Google as our immediate, all-knowing oracle of answers, from trivial to profound. Google is our modern-day God, Galloway says. He goes on. Think back on every fear, every hope, every desire you've confessed to Google's search box, and then ask yourself, is there any entity you've trusted more with your secrets? Does anybody know you better than Google? (laughs) You know, his words aren't as far-fetched as you might think. I mean, social media aside, how many would you say really know you? I mean, really know you. Know your faults, know your past, know your longings, know your struggles, know your fears, know everything about you. How many people would you say truly know you? It was Tim Keller who said in his, in his book on marriage, he said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, this is so jam-packed with lofty thoughts of God. And and more than that, that it's going to be really, we're going to just scratch the surface here. Now, this week really is an extension of what we looked at last week in Isaiah chapter 40. And my hope from our time last week was that we all left with a greater awe of our great God. Well, what should wow us about God this morning in our time in Psalm 139 is that we are fully known by God, yet truly loved. We are fully known by God, yet truly loved. Do you know the God who knows you? It loves you. I introduced a new sermon series last week. I'm calling True North. For we need today more than ever a fixed reference point that keeps us centered on the truth and a changing, tumultuous uh, world that we live in. And what is that fixed reference point? What we believe. Do you know what you believe? Do you know what you believe? And as I stated last week, this study was prompted by the elders and pastors as we consider prayerfully and seriously joining the Evangelical Free Church of America, EFCA. And so for the next few months, we're going to be working through Evangelical Free's statement of faith to guide us in this study. And article number one in the EFC Statement of Faith, and speaking of what we believe about God, says this, it's on on the screen. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory." Now, my purpose in using this and other statements along the way as our guide is not to go through it line by line or even word by word, but to capture the essence of each statement to better fix in our minds what we believe. For what we believe defines who we are. What we believe defines who we are. And how true that is when it comes to what we believe about God. It was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes to our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. All right, Psalm 139. I hope you're there in your Bibles. Follow along with this because I'm going to be going down through a lot of these verses here and I want you to be able to follow along and see it for yourself here. Now, this is a a familiar psalm. That's both good and bad. It's dangerous because we go, "I, I know this. Or it's, it's like, oh yeah, this has been a great source of encouragement to me. And so you kind of can lock in. But it's an intensely personal psalm. I, I want us to see that. Someone pointed out that there's around 50 pronouns used in this, in this one psalm. And there's a compelling invitation in this psalm to know the God who knows you. Do you know him? Not, I didn't ask you, do you know about him or a little about him? Do you know him? All right, my first heading this morning, we're going to keep it simple here. God knows everything about you. God knows everything about you. Over and over in these verses, we find, you'll find the phrase, especially the first six verses, uh, you know, you know. The God we believe in is limitless in knowledge. You see, God literally knows Everything. And everything God knows, he knows perfectly. And everything God knows perfectly, he knows exhaustively. If there was any percentage that God didn't know, he wouldn't be God. Every detail of this world, every detail of your life is totally, perfectly, exhaustively known by God. There was was this teaching that was um, popular in certain circles 10, 15 years ago now, but but it might still be bleeding out there and maybe in your minds, I hope not. But there's there's teaching that suggested that God does not exercise meticulous control of the universe, but leaves it open, leaves it open for humans to make significant choices that impact their relationships with God and others. In other words... God doesn't concern himself with the future. In fact, he really doesn't know about the future for he leaves it open to see how other people are going to choose. It's called open theism. Open theism. Meaning that God is open to what's going to happen. Now, it's not my purpose this morning to dive in deeply on this and debate open theism, But suffice it to say, open theism is dangerous on many, many levels. That God knows everything that can be known, but God does not know the future is an extreme form of free will and rejects God's omniscience that he's all-knowing and rejects God's sovereignty. I hope you don't believe this open theism stuff. David for sure would disagree with open theism. He says in verse one, you have searched me, you know me. You know me, thoroughly know me. That's what it means. The word search literally means to pierce through. We say something like I can see right through him, meaning I can, I can see the truth. Now, now apparently there was this study done that reported that women are more likely to have a mind-reading gene mutation that gives them the ability to read a person's thoughts and emotions by looking at their eyes. (laughs) The scientists found that the genetic variants on chromosome 3 in women are associated with their ability to read the mind in the eyes, known as cognitive empathy. Now, if that's true, I figured it just might boost the sale of men's sunglasses. (laughs) I'm not sure I really buy these findings. I mean, seriously, if women really could read their husband's minds, would the result be cognitive empathy? I mean, just saying might be cognitive rage. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You have a point? Yes, here's the thing. God always sees right through us to the truth of who we really are. He can see right through us and not just what my others perceive us to be. He can see us. He's the only one. God knows you better than your your spouse knows you. God knows you better than your counselor. God knows you better than your parents. God knows you better than you know yourself. That's why he continues in verse 2. He says, you, verse 2, you, which is emphatic in the original, you know when I sit and when I rise. That's a figure of speech here that David uses to suggest that not only does he know when you sit down and then you get up, but everything in between. This figure of speech really is saying in the mundane, God knows what you're doing. Every move you make, every bond you break, every smile you fake, every step you take, I'll be watching you, only applies to God. Only God. It's all known by God, even right down to the thoughts that pass through your mind. He says it, end of verse 2, you perceive my thoughts from afar. That's referring to time, not space. If there's something heavy on your mind this morning, as you walked into this building, God knew it in advance. Your mind might might be racing with worry right now as I speak, but God already thought about it. You might exclaim, now What? I never never thought about it that way. God has. You might say, how will I pay for for my rent? Or how will I pay for this tuition? How will I make it being alone? Will my life ever return to some normalcy now that my loved one is gone? You might wonder how things are going to turn out, but not God. He already knows. God knows what you're dabbling in. God knows what you're wrestling with, that choice of between right and wrong. God knows everything about you. God knows everything about me. Take that in. God knows everything about you. God knows everything about me. And here's the amazing part. He still loves us. There isn't anything that God would find out about you that would cause him to love you any less. There isn't some skeleton in your closet that's gonna come out someday that's gonna cause God to be disgusted with you. There isn't anything about your past that could be brought to, to light that would shock God. God had enough information about you when he saved you. He knew how sinful you and I were. He knew all our inborn sinful tendencies, yet he sent Christ to save us. God is graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself, the statement of faith says, and that means you. God knows everything about you. You're familiar with all my ways, David says at the end of verse 3. Does God know the choice I'm going to make before I make it? And what if I change my mind at the last minute? Does God say, I didn't see that one coming? (laughs) Verse 4 answers that. It says, before words on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You see, when trying to remember something, a place, a name, a certain word, we might say something, it's on the tip of my tongue. God knows it even before it gets to the tip of my tongue. And not quite out yet. God knows what you're thinking about. As I preach, I hope you're thinking about what I'm talking about, but I don't really know. It may look like you're thinking about what I'm talking about, but I really don't know that. I don't have any way of knowing that. You might be thinking about what you're gonna do this afternoon. Are you gonna watch the Pats game, or you're gonna go out to dinner, or you might be thinking about what you gotta do at the end of this week, you have this assignment due or a deadline to meet. I don't know, you might be thinking about all that or any of that. That's what kind of leads David to say in verse five, I kind of get this, you hem me in, God, behind and before. And that word, the idea of hemming in, that when an army would take over a city, they would hem it in, they would surround it so that there is no way of escape. David is saying, there's no escaping God's thorough, penetrating, knowledge and and, and to think about this does it kind of make you feel hemmed in David continues you've laid your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful me too lofty to it for me to attain And what David's saying here in these first six verses is that this awareness of God's knowledge becomes a little unnerving for David he feels like running from it but then he realizes, well, a lot of good that would do. If he goes far in one direction, or he goes far in the other direction, guess what? God is there. Point number two: God goes where you go. God goes where you go. David here in verse seven, he asks um, two uh, rhetorical questions. It really complements each other. Kind of parallel thoughts here. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The two questions, anticipate one answer. Nowhere. And then after employing poetic parallelism, in which two questions kind of complement each other, David uses two pairs of hypothetical opposites, verses 8 and 9. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, meaning Sheol, which is uh, death's holding place. He's not making a statement about the dead. He's saying, here, there, you're there, here, there, everywhere, in between, you're there. That's what he's saying by this. You can go as far up and far down, doesn't matter. God is present there. God is there. Years ago, some Russian cosmonauts traveled into space. And when they returned, uh, it was reported that they said to the Russian people, we went out to space and we didn't see God. He isn't there. Someone later pointed out that if they opened the hatch, they would have seen God. (laughs) All right, a little morbid. Does God seem nowhere to be found? I mean, just because you can't see him doesn't mean he he isn't present. I mean, if you were to walk by a beautiful garden, you would assume that there was a gardener and caretaker of the garden, even though you didn't see the gardener. In the same way, God's presence is known by the effects of the intelligently cultivated garden. We can see his fingerprints, his handiwork, his displayed excellence in the world around us. As I drove in this morning, early this morning, it was a beautiful sky. I don't know if you saw it, 637, something like that. It was absolutely gorgeous. Garden. I didn't see God. I saw the garden. And the same God who created all that, He's near you. He's present wherever you go. There's no place He is not. You can run, but you cannot hide. Forever you go, God is there. And that's why he says in verse nine, if I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I set on the far side of the sea, meaning if he goes far east as possible, far west as he can go, God is there also. You kind of get the point, right? God is everywhere in between those. And not only is God there, but we have these words of reassurance in verse 10. Even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. You see, even better than God simply being there, His presence sustains us, it holds us up. Even better than, than God showing up in those places, he's there with what's best for our lives. His presence, no matter where we go, that's actually a good thing. It's a very good thing. And that's where the psalm will eventually take us. But follow this thought through. David isn't quite there yet. He's feeling the weight of God's presence. The weight of God's knowledge. And he said if he could run from God's presence, he could not hide from his presence. Darkness can't hide us from God, David says in verses 11 and 12. I'm not going to read it, but you can look down at it yourself. See, we, can't, we can turn off the lights, we can pull down the shades, we can go under the covers, we can keep some secret from everyone else, but nothing is hidden from God's sight. David He now moves from this knowledge of God being a little unsettling and unnerving to finding great comfort in God's omniscience, meaning he's all-knowing. He's limitless in knowledge. So we come to point three this morning. God made you who you are. God made you who you are. Verses 13 through 16. That really kind of functions as an ultrasound we get to take a peek into the mother's womb from God's perspective. Verse 13, follow along, it says, for you, uh, emphatic there, you, God, created my inmost being. He says again, you, emphatic you, you, God, knit me together in my mother's womb. Who did? God did All the credit of his forming and our forming goes to God, not to mother nature or to chance or to some big bang. Now, the words there, inmost being, is very interesting. There's actually one word in the original, and it's the word for kidneys. That might seem kind of strange to us. The psalmist points out God's creating of kidneys. Couldn't he have done something else? Well, in Hebrew thought... Um, kidneys kind of that spot there is, it represents the innermost part of a person we might use the word heart to express that we might say well, I love you with all my heart they would say I love you with all my kidney it's not very romantic <laughs> but I love you with all my heart meaning uh, uh, everything in my whole being all of me I love you that's what we're saying by that it's not the physical organ God was, was, was involved and grabbed this in the intricate details in the child's creation in the womb, meaning you. God's special act of creating begins in the womb. and I, I'm just blown away by God's relationship to the unborn baby. And so is David. He marvels over the mysterious process of developing a life inside the womb of a mom. He says in verse 14, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This is when he really starts to turn a corner on seeing all this as a good thing. I praise you for this. And when he says fearfully made here, it's the idea of astonishment and awe. Human life should cause us to marvel at God's prized creation. Now, let's pause there a second and let me ask you this question. Do you view others that way? Do you see others as, as image bearers wonderfully made by God or are you trying to change them into your image to be like you? Each of us in this room is uniquely and wonderfully made. Church, Let's celebrate the differences instead of allowing those differences to irritate and divide us. Do you praise God for how he has made someone else? Do you praise God for how he has made you? I remember in my year, early years as, as, as a pastor um, that, I, that I, I, I would listen to other preachers and, and I, wish, I really wish I could be like them. I didn't like my own voice. I wish I had the voice of Alistair Begg. I kind of like his accent. I wish I had that one. <laughs> I wish I had the laugh of Chuck Swindoll. I wish I had the brains of R.C. Sproul. I really struggled with that early on in my, in my ministry. Now, this is all you get is this. Now, I'm kind of okay with it. But do you sometimes wish you had a different set of strengths? I mean, you start to think, oh, I wish I looked like this. I wish I had this ability. I wish I was like that other person. Stop. Remember that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God himself. Now, by the way, and I don't want to spend much time on this, but by the way, this is not an excuse for wrong actions and behaviors and just going, well, that's just the way I am. I know that was an insensitive comment, but you know me, I'm insensitive. No. No. No, you can't, you can't. that's not going to fly. Not with God. Now, verse 15. There's just so much here. Verse 15. Let's break this down a little bit. He says, my frame, which is, refers to the shape and form that, that God gives to the unborn. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. What's the secret place? The womb. That which is hidden from everyone else is seen by God. Even with sonograms, our knowledge of all that's going on, the forming of life inside a mother's womb is insignificant in comparison to what our God sees and knows and is doing and forming that baby. That's why he says, when I was woven together, knit together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Woven together, it's a rich, rich phrase. You, you, can, you can check it out, but, but here's, here's a modern paraphrase that says it this way You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Listen, what's in the womb is not some blob, it's a person. And as it's been said, there's no difference between an unborn baby and a newborn baby, except location. That's one reason abortion is such an atrocity. That's not a political statement. That's a moral statement. Think about it. Many people say abortion is such a complex issue and there just aren't any easy answers. Well, Gregory Kuklo points out, he says, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. He goes on, if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. See, if what's in the womb is a person, then even if someone is pro-abortion or pro-choice for any number of reasons, all their reasoning falls apart. Abortion is taking this child that is fearfully and wonderfully made and knit together by God himself and interrupting that work that God is doing. Not I grieve us. I know it does grieve you. And God calls on us to defend the lives of the unborn as they are precious in his sight. For what God has created, he cherishes, and so should we. But listen, our concern shouldn't end there, though. What God created, he cherishes, compels us to value all human life after birth, outside the womb, as well as inside of it. As God's people, we should value all people as we stand take a stand in our culture against any attempt to devalue human life. Such as such as racism and murder and pornography and human trafficking, genocide, list goes on. The life God created, he cherishes. Even when I wasn't much in terms of being a developed person, I meant something to God. He set out my days. He wrote all the details of my life in his book. He says at the end of verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And it almost gives me a headache to even think of it. Because I can't grab it. But David's appreciation for this all-knowing God changes. It might have felt uh, unnerving to the point of trying to get away from it and flee. David considers it precious and valuable. He sees that in verses 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. God knows everything about you. God goes where you go. God has made you. God cherishes what he created. Our response look at david's response point number four god demands your all that assurance of his love opens the way to pray this prayer look at verses 23 and 24 david says search me O god know my te- know my heart test me which is a word used for a refiner testing metal know my anxious thoughts have any of those See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you, do you see where David ends up? He's requesting that God examine him. As he comes to more deeply know the one who knows him through and through, he desires nothing less than complete conformity to God's will. So he prays for God's examination of his spiritual condition. He knows God already knows. So he's saying, I want an awareness of what you see in my life that is offensive, that needs to be changed, that I need to work on. Because you already know it. You already see it. I want to know it. I want to know it. The searching is not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. Now suppose, suppose you're driving around this corner this morning. and, And then when you got to the top of the hill, over to the right, is a police officer looking for speeders. You know, he knows how fast you're going. What do you do? Likely you do what every person does, whether you're speeding or not. You step on the brake, right? You adjust your speed if you have to. But what you wouldn't do is step on the gas pedal, wave to the police officer as you go by. You wouldn't do that. If you do, you're not very smart. Well, God sits at the top of your life. You know, he knows. What do you do? Well, let it draw you to look at the dashboard of your life and change what you need to change. But here's here's the part. You change from a place of full acceptance of God and not to earn His love. I gotta camp here just a little bit. It 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 was Matt Chandler who put it this way. God doesn't love some future version of you He loves you now. Can you embrace that? God doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you now. You could say it this way. He doesn't change you in order to love you. He changes you because he loves you. He doesn't change you so that he can love you. He loves you. So he changes you because he loves you. The one who knows it all knows what is best for your life. So can you trust the God who is limitless in knowledge and go to God and say, search me, oh God. Show me what it is you already know so I can see it. Will that be the cry of your heart? Will that be the cry of my heart? Go to the Lord in brutal honesty. No shallow prayers, no more saying what it is we think God wants to hear. But praying from a position of confidence and that he knows me yet Loves me. Do you know the God who knows you? Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you keep coming to the one who knows you? The burden of this passage is to know the God who knows you. To be known yet still loved. Is that the picture that comes to your mind when you think of God? That I am created and I am cherished by him. He loves me. Even though he sees it all. Marianne Bird writes that when she was growing up, she knew she was different. And I hated it, she said. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made clear to me how I looked to others a little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and a garbled speech. When schoolmates would ask, What happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and I cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident, to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored. Mrs. Leonard was her name. She was short, round, and happy, a sparkling lady. And annually, we would have this hearing test, and Mrs. Leonard would would give the test to everyone in the class. and, And finally, it was my turn. And I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. And she would say things like, The sky is blue, or Do you have new shoes? I waited to hear her words that God must have put in her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life, she says. Mrs. Leonard said to me in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. Listen, you are super important to your maker. He's not going, I wish you weren't my child. On the contrary, he's involved and he's interested in you. You are created and cherished by the one who made it all. <laughs> Let's take that with us in this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for including in your word this beautiful psalm, and it's no doubt been a part of many people's lives in, in this room right today. Maybe some of you memorized portions of this psalm. So I pray whatever we've done with this or if this is the very first time we've heard this, that we would, we would, we would grasp it, what we can grasp and embrace the wonderful truth that you know us, You go wherever we go. You've made us. You put us together a certain way. And you still love us. And it's from that place of love that we can ask you, God, search us. Help us to know you better. That's the best place to be. It's the best prayer we can give you coming out of this psalm today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.